Hey awesome people, welcome to episode 15 of the second season of Lantern, where a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. This fortnight, we're sitting down with Jeffrey Effendi, who's the founder of Draw History, a strategy and design studio built for today's changemakers. Together, we discuss the role of storytelling in amplifying the work of impact organizations, the power of positive narratives, and the role of responsible business in design. So I hope you enjoy this one. So my name is Jeffrey Fendi. I am the founder and head of creativity at Draw History. Head of creativity really is a fancy way of phrasing creative director. I oversee a lot of the strategy and comms that our team creates and develops for nonprofits and social enterprises. Draw History is a design agency essentially looking to amplify positive stories and then sort of push narratives that will bring communities together. We work with a lot of social enterprises and, and nonprofits in the last three and a half, sort of four years that we worked in, sort of ranging from NGOs like UNICEF to government. For example, we've worked with New South Wales Health and a lot of different sort of community programs and really, really passionate about countering negative narratives. There's so many negative narratives out there, catchphrases that people latch onto that really just create white noise that people aren't able to distinguish between the truth and, and things that are just false. So, yeah, really keen on countering that, uplifting the voices of people, yeah, and getting people excited about doing good. You know, I, I don't see why the community sector can't be as, as prominent as, as the Nikes and the coats of the world. Why can people get excited about that but not the things that really, really matter to, to fellow people? And I'm curious where that, uh, that passion originally came from, especially with um, countering sort of, negative narratives. So was there a particular moment that sparked that for you? Yeah, definitely. This is sort of a story that I generally retell um, when I do introduce draw history as well. So when I was about six or maybe seven years old back in 98, so I was originally born in Indonesia and I sort of migrated to Australia 20 plus years ago, pretty much by, by force. Um, so when I was seven, you know, uh, back in in that time, there were mass race riots and, and, you know, people in Indonesia, well, specific groups of people, extremists, were persecuting Chinese people. And me sort of living in a Chinese enclave with my family, our neighbourhood was being targeted as well. And I just remember one night, you know, my mum was crying, dad was, you know, pretty hysterical. They were sort of tuning into the radio and um, there was new, um, this had, you know, either sexually assaulted or killed Chinese people um, around an area where it was nearing our house. They were about three blocks down, so they weren't too far away. As they were tuning to the radio, they were scrambling, you know, to, to try and find ways to hide me and my younger brother, who we were three years old at the time. So they hid us in a manhole or a very, very small attic, if you can sort of paint a picture. You know, we hid up there, all four of us, and I remember my mum grabbing a knife my dad having a steel bat they passed on an insect repellent spray to me which isn't as potent as, as the other weapons but still, still great spray people in the eye i guess that was the logic and uh, we huddled there for hours right in the dark you know not knowing what would happen to us until maybe early hours of the morning four or five in the morning when our sort of family van picked us up um, i remember just my grandparents my younger cousin who was a baby my aunties my uncles just squeezing into this one van uh, we put curtains up on uh, the windows so that people wouldn't know that it was a van full of chinese people and we made our way to the docks to try and you know ferry our way out of Chicago. 
and, and you know, seeing people running around, fires, boxes flying everywhere. Anyway, we reached the docks. We ferried across to various islands that are staying in different cabins in the woods for eventually flying to Australia because I guess it illustrates from a personal context how negative narratives can impact the way people live their lives, right? I'm Chinese, and if someone says, hey, Chinese people are stealing our jobs, it creates a sentiment, whether that's true or not, it creates a sentiment um, to the people within that community. And, and for me, you know, having to, to leave what I knew, learning a new language, being in another country, it really changed my life's outlook, for better or for worse. I mean, I love this country, so, you know, thank God that, that I'm here. But, you know, this experience is not isolated to me. Many, many people around the world have it, whether to that extent or, or worse, countering the negative narratives that they've been stigmatized, whether it's refugees, whether it's people who are experiencing homelessness, whether it's people in the LGBT community. It's important that there's a voice out there or there's a platform out there that to, to counter these narratives, to destigmatize the tough conversations that we have in the community. We get people humanize the human experience that refugees aren't, you know, queue jumpers, that people on the boats aren't trying to take what's ours, that it's innately, you know, they're human beings going through a very human challenge. Um, how do we bring that to the forefront of society and get people to understand that, um, but also to take action? after being educated as to what they can do. Thank you so much for sharing that. I can imagine it would have been an extremely sort of traumatizing process. So we do appreciate you sharing that with us and our uh, listeners. And I suppose sort of a question I want to follow up then with these sort of negative narratives, your own experience, I guess, can be seen as an extreme of what can happen when these negative narratives sort of continue building in a community or into a country. Yet I'm sort of struck by this idea that sometimes people say within Australia, for example, they may not necessarily have seen the extremes in which it can get. And people almost brush off negative narratives. It's like, oh, they're only stories or they're only words. It doesn't really matter, right? Which again is so completely wrong. And I feel like that's always from people who have never been on the receiving end of those negative narratives. So I suppose my question is in a bit of a roundabout way, how are you, I guess, maybe challenging people who might be a bit more apathetic in the situation, who might think that narratives, if they're negative, don't really matter? Is that something you've actually found yourself having to do at Draw History or is that, mm. has that not been a sort of a problem? Yeah, I mean, I think the issue is pervasive on both ends of the spectrum. So you've got people who are maybe, you know, being more oblivious of the fact that it affects certain groups of people, but on the other end of the spectrum, you know, maybe we're shortchanging it by saying it only affects certain groups of people. I think there are a lot of young people out there who are exposed to, to bullying in schools, right? Like in terms of mental health, anxiety, depression. I mean, a lot of that conversation might not happen in a school setting. It might happen online where they're trying to find resources and a support network. I think it's really important that we don't underestimate the pervasiveness of, of stigmatization. I think it hits close to many, many different facets of society. It's just some are more prominent than others. Some are hot topics, you know, that, that you know, the government sort of highlights, whether it's, you know, refugees or LGBT, you know, rights. But there are others that are more hidden. How do we educate everyone equally? How do we include sort of everyone in, in that conversation? Um, I think a good example of that, and look, it, it may have backfired to an extent for, for Gillette, 
But I thought that the ad that, that they came out with, you know, a couple of months ago was really great in sort of bringing that conversation to light regarding toxic masculinity, whether you know, people agreed with it or not, it brought the conversation to the forefront. And it's not really about taking sides. It's about having a conversation about it with your friends. Like I remember, you know, when I saw the ad, I sort of went to, to a chat group of, you know, people I basketball with. I'm on a weekly basis and we just talked about it. Hey, what do you, what do you guys think about it? And I thought it was really healthy just to have a you know, healthy discussion around it. And similarly with, with anything really for us at, at Draw History, um, we're not looking to simply work with not-for-profits, right? It's not just social enterprises. That's almost quote unquote preaching to the choir. Sometimes those organizations operate with an ecosystem that already believes in what they do. Recently got B Corp certified because we're really passionate about, you know, businesses' role in what they can do to educate the community as well. We've worked with some really, really great businesses, whether that's in biotech or even in, you know, commercial property in terms of, you know, how do they activate communities inside commercial buildings? How do we tackle mental health or, you know, mental wellness uh, in commercial buildings through different initiatives? So we're working with corporates around that stuff all the time. I think it's really important that when we talk about stuff like this, that we're not just putting ourselves in silos and, and really opening up and inviting people to that conversation. Yeah, I completely agree because it can be such an easy trap to get into if you're just, as you said, speaking to a bit of an echo chamber almost. So, And I guess I sort of want to touch on draw history a bit more in more detail. So you gave us a bit of an introduction, but I'm curious to know, I guess a bit more of the origin story behind the organization. What sort of led you to start in the first place? When I was growing up, um, being from an Asian family, uh, <laughs> I uh, did a lot of design work, but had to sort of complement it with the more, more uh, you know, the maths, uh, the rigor of academics, quote unquote. You know, throughout uni, I, I did law and business, a double degree in that, and I sort of majored in, in finance and accounting plus law. So I did that for about six years plus postgrad at ANU for a seventh year. First place I worked at was an organization called the Humanitarian Group. So for you listeners out there, definitely check them out. They're a community legal center. They assist people seeking asylum and refugees in gaining protection visas. So I worked with them in the capacity of a law graduate. You know, that was the first time I was sort of exposed to, to that sector, if you will sort of you know during that time I was really it was really eye-opening experience I was drafting submissions you know for people who had experienced trauma and it sort of allowed me to to reflect on my experience as well at that time and it sort of made me think about oh yeah I remember when that happened to me as well you know I remember then applying for the UNICEF uh, youth ambassador position nationally and getting that as well and sort of exposed me to all of these issues in our society. You know, fast forward a year, I eventually secured a full-time paying job at a federal government um, law firm. You know, during that time, I, I kind of missed um, a lot of the stuff I did at the humanitarian group and a lot of the volunteering stuff I started to get involved in. And I also started to realize that once I left the humanitarian group, it was actually called another organization before, and they went through this rebrand process. And I realized that a lot of nonprofits out there, you know, struggle with funding. They struggle with telling their story. That they struggle to to really, you know, assess their impact, to capture that impact, and educate people on on what it means to to support an organisation like the Humanitarian Group. So you know, during this whole time, I you know I, I was sort of a bit removed from it, 
but it was never far away from, from my thoughts. Eventually, I, uh, I resigned from that law firm and I thought to myself, you know what, if there was an organization out there, if there was an initiative out there that allowed organizations like the humanitarian group to be able to position themselves for success, by success I mean you know, getting more people to rally behind what they did, um, to engage their donors, think about you know, different revenue streams to be able to conjure up different you know, finance um, mechanisms outside of just grant, that'd be a really great thing for Perth. There, there weren't very many agencies like that four years ago. In fact, there was probably none. Um, I could safely say I moved into a student co-working space, just pure passion for, for this particular mission. And yeah, I, I got set up there and, and soon after my partner sort of joined me and we worked from there and, and built our way up. Um, and then it's it's been a journey ever since. For some of our listeners who may not be too familiar with the space, Sort of how, I guess, does in general like a strategic design agency function then? Because, at least for me, uh, I do have a commerce background, but it seems like a lot of the strategy stuff you're saying almost seems a little bit separate in my mind uh, than what firms typically do to the design stuff. And you mentioned back in the day there weren't too many people doing that, but is that a lot more common in the space these days? I think in the Perth scene, it's definitely been an emergence of strategic design. When, when we talk about strategic design, I guess just to dispel the nebulousness of the phrase, design could really apply to, to any um, discipline, right? We could be talking about graphic design, digital design, event design, service design. It's the design of something. For us, it's primarily, I would say, you know, digital, print, brand design, so visual design. But all of that is designed to serve an end goal and that end goal is to address a particular challenge or problem so for example let, let's take one of our clients you know we've been working with an organization called the museum of freedom and tolerance another great organization that you guys should check out they are looking to create australia's first human rights museum a really ambitious mandate you know when they approached us that they had a particular philosophy behind it but they didn't have the momentum you know that they wanted how do you create a museum without walls that was particular challenge they had. So down the track, surely they could muster up the funds to create a museum. A thing we pitched to them was, you know, well, if it's meant to be grassroots, but community buy-in, how do we consult the community in a way that's real, in a way that's genuine? We decided with them through multiple workshops, we found that, hey, if we had the capacity, why don't we create a hackathon event or a design challenge for the community to see what people thought a museum for human rights could look like. And through the course of a weekend, we you know, mustered up over 100 people and uh, there were multiple teams pitching for a museum without walls. Some of the ideas, you know, revolved around activating stories around, you know, our Indigenous peoples in WA through augmented reality. Some people came up with ideas around conversation cards. So, you know, how do we get playing cards where people get to talk about issues that are really real in, in our community? So through all this pitching and, you know, a lot of people came out um, in, in droves, but it gave us and the museum a really good foundation as to where people's headspace was at. So as a first step, again, it's just designing a solution, right? You're going, all right, they don't have any momentum. How do we get some momentum? How do we get the community involved? Let's do a hackathon. The next thing we then did was activate a human rights day at uh, the center of the CBD to get more people involved in talking. We activated a playground to allude to a, a child's right to play and parents were there as well. And it again, created momentum and leading up to 
you know, at an event we did last week, it was a conference with the WA Museum in the Maritime Museum. So it's almost a synergy between the three museums activate the symposium across three days to get speakers um, talking about issues around human rights. And over 250 people came. And uh, yeah, it's just gone from strength to strength. So in a roundabout way, it's about solving a particular challenge and seeing how design plays a part in that and what strategy feeds into it. Of course, throughout the whole thing, there's going to be visual design. You know, how do we get it up online so people know about it? There's going to be events, registration, there's going to be social media. How do we get participants to pitch? Well, there's going to be a physical toolkit that they get on pitching. There's going to be land yards that people wear. There's going to be a brand around that and the event itself. What do people get? What's the program book going to look like? How this event? That's a service design and event design aspect of it. So really, it's about addressing a particular challenge through strategy and design to activate that strategy. Another question I want to ask was sort of more around, I guess, your clients that you've been working with. And you have mentioned that a lot of them have been like sort of non-for-profits and things like that. I'm curious in like how sort of fees and things would like would work for that. Because I can imagine that the non-for-profit space can sometimes be quite limited in resources. So has it ever been a challenge with some of your engagements with clients? That's sort of the financial aspect of it all? Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, being in this particular space, because it's so saturated, there's tons and tons of agencies, whether that's in WA or in the Eastern States. I think it's a really great space to be in. There's a lot of creativity. But of course, with that, um, especially being in the community sector, when you're niching down, there comes a time when you realize, actually, you know, there are some funding challenges. There are some budgetary constraints in this sector in particular. I think a lot of nonprofits feel, and, and rightfully so, that their main mandate is to serve their clients. It's to serve their beneficiaries. You know, they are responsible to them first. And second, I would argue to their board. I think, you know, the board almost serves as this advisory committee that keeps the checks and balances going. And then third, um, wherever their funding sources come from, they're responsible in that as well and being accountable to what that pool of money, I guess, allows them to do. So those three almost restricts them into thinking, you know, maybe marketing or design or storytelling is a priority. Definitely, you know, have come across that. But I think the onus is on us as well to be able to work through that with them. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, we're a social impact driven agency and just charge in the same way as any traditional agency. But it's another to be able to deeply empathize with that and be able to sort of frame it around different arrangements. So, you know, as a service-based business, it's always going to be fee-for-service. So we'd put together a proposal at the end of it all and there's always going to be a transaction of money, of course, get the ugly stuff out of the way. But I think what's more nuanced is being able to meet these organizations where they're at. You know, I've seen so many agencies out there, you know, who work with not-for-profits offer things that they may not need immediately. You have to be able to adapt and grow as, as your clients grow. A lot of them won't have funding channels. A lot of them will only be able to apply for grants that are very limited and very competitive. So if you're offering marketing services, if you're offering storytelling services, design services, how do you frame that in a way that allows them to build their capacity? How do you make sure that their volunteers are empowered to take on whatever work you do so they don't have to continuously rely on you. 
I think that's sort of countercultural to how the agency industry has worked. I think dependence is a huge thing for a lot of clients out there. And, and that's fine because consultants do really good work and, you know, we're seen as the experts. So being dependent on us is, is completely fine. But in this particular sector, it's also another thing to educate your clients and to be able to allow them to spread their wings and teach their volunteers, teach their board members, teach their staff to be able to take on what you've created, allow them to have ownership of that. So just, yeah, packaging a lot of our deliverables around that has been really important. Uh, but of course, you know, there are always going to be challenges and we're still looking for different ways we can lower the barrier to entry. And that's the interesting part about serving um, the community sector. And I think that's something you mentioned a little bit earlier. And I just want to clarify, has the organization been working with many sort of corporates or has that sort of been maybe like down the track, you're hoping to engage those clients a bit more in the future? We've worked with some corporates, I think, in terms of our scope for, you know, our our ethos. It doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for just any corporate. Um, It has one that has a social responsibility or a social mission that they're looking to achieve. Whether they're there or not, that doesn't really matter to us. It's, It's where they're currently at and where their heart is, right? There are a lot of corporates out there who are interested in having this conversation and and they do want to activate things that are really great. If we turn them down because they're not there yet, then I think that creates a higher barrier to entry for them. A lot of our clients, you know, we work with over 100 of them, are nonprofits and social enterprises and community initiatives launched by government. Prominently, they've definitely been that. There have been businesses that, that we've worked with because they saw and we saw the potential that their work could have on the community or for the community. But we're definitely interested in working with more corporates. And as the B Corp space grows or as the purpose and profit sort of conscious capitalism movement grows, I envision a lot more businesses you know, starting to invest money into that, invest their time and resource into that. And I, sort of the next area I want to touch on links back to that the narrative aspect and sort of countering those negative narratives. So this is probably, please forgive my ignorance, I guess I'm sort of not struggling, but the link doesn't seem as clear in terms of Draw History's work and sort of that process of challenging those narratives, if that makes sense. So I'm just curious to, I guess, have a bit more of an understanding of of the organization's strategy in sort of countering those bad narratives? Like, is it more giving light or giving voice to positive narratives in terms of trying to overcome the bad ones? Or is it directly addressing sort of negative narratives as well? Yeah, great question. You've pretty much answered it. So (laughs) there are going to be opportunities where you're going to be able to counter bad narratives, certainly. But the opportunity to uplift positive ones are probably you know, in greater number. For example, we worked with the Centre for Social Impact, which actually there's a branch in UNSW and UWA as well here in Perth. They launched a social impact festival um, a few years back. And uh, it's the only one, and I guess the biggest one by default in uh, in Australia at that time, uh, it was primarily research driven. So a lot of research practitioners and academics were the ones driving this festival. As you can imagine, a festival that's primarily research-based, while great in terms of rigor and expertise, it didn't include too many other sort of stakeholder groups in the community. They came to us to see how they could tell their story better and and reposition the festival to make it more festivaly, if you will. You know, so a couple of years ago, they came to us and said, hey, look, we've had 2,000 plus people coming to our festival and that's really, really good, but 
how do we bring the conversation around social impacts to more people? People think it's, you know, for only those in the know, right? When we worked with them, we did a ton of community consultations with students, with corporates, with government, certainly with nonprofits, with academics, sort of just touching different facets of the community to see what a festival for everyone could mean. Eventually, we repositioned it. You know, we talked about embedding these attributes uh, to the festival around unifying, uh, around being catalytic, purpose-driven, inspiring. So things that included people in the conversation and the logo itself almost became a speech bubble looking thing that people could get behind. By the time we launched the new brand around the new messaging, the new story, the new things we were highlighting, the concept, you know, we were rolling it out across campus, across the city, you know, they harnessed of 4,400 people. So over double the amount for that particular year. And the year after that, we did another sort of refresh on the brand you know, opening it up to more people, um, even thematically, it was about inclusion, right? So we had these textures and these patterns around um, hand painting, just sort of people coming together. A lot of the imagery was around that. And yeah, over 6,000 plus people came the third time around. So it's almost, you know, 2,000, 2,000, yeah, more um, every year. So really, really great in sort of bringing people together. So that's an example of, I guess, highlighting the positivity and social good and bringing people into the conversation. You know, a mentee of mine who's 14 was even there and he sort of started a social enterprise afterwards. <laughs> so that's just one example. Another one, I guess, countering bad narratives, I would say a couple of years ago, very hot topic in terms of, you know, bringing refugees to, to WA. The government had cut funding for interpreter services. So if you've I guess if you know what the process is like, you know, the documentation is very dense for people wanting to apply for protection visa or temporary protection visas. And a lot of people from outside of our, you know, English speaking community won't be able to get through these documents. They're entrenched in legalese, there's tons of pages. So the roles that interpreters and translators play is very, very critical in this process. In a full circle moment, we sort of worked with the humanitarian group again because they needed around $80,000 to actually, you know, process 80 um, people who were seeking asylum. Um, and, and they were just sort of stuck in limbo on the waiting list. Obviously, it creates uncertainty in, into their futures and, and what they could do. So, uh, you know, we launched a crowdfunding campaign with them around, you know, humanizing that $80,000. It's not donate $80,000 and it will go to charity. It's, you know, every $1,000 helps a refugee understand these documents, go through the process with an interpreter in a safe environment, sort of attributing everything around, you know, the human to human experience and even the campaign, you know, seeking refuge. The, the key message was, I'll help you apply. We even had former justice um, from the High Court, uh, Justice Michael Kirby, um, speak at the launch event. And, you know, anyway, long story short, at the end of the campaign, we raised about $95,000, sort of exceeding the $80,000, and it became the largest crowdfunding campaign of its kind. And I thought that was a really great moment because it sort of harnessed the power of community, it lowered the barrier to entry and, and what it meant to give for a refugee-based cause. And you could see people rallying around, you know, sharing the posts on social media, getting involved. And I thought that was a really great moment, especially during that climate. Just hearing like all the success that Draw History has had, it's been really amazing. And I guess it's also been recognized by Forbes and you've been awarded uh, 30 under 30. And that whole award, like how did you, I guess, sort of 
almost capitalize on that recognition that that award sort of gave you like were there I, I guess was it also expected or did it sort of come out the blue like I'm just curious to know about that first of all just would like to recognize obviously that it's a very much a team effort so it's been really really great in uh not just uh, as an ego boost mechanism I mean, it's completely not what, it, not what it is it's making that clear it's more so about highlighting the fact that young people can envision something and, and go for it and have that you know attention not for themselves but the causes they're fighting for as cliched as it sounds that was the biggest triumph for us and it sort of did come out of the blue so you know we were looped into that process the editors sort of you know reached out to us and said hey look this thing is happening you guys are being shortlisted and that was really great and i remember just you know me and and, and my partner angel we got an email that said hey you know you're going to hear from this day if you don't hear then you're not going to be on the list that's totally fine to us we're like wow being shortlisted itself is an honor right especially from an isolated city like perth and having forbes spotlight us that was great in itself i remember just sitting down with her and going hey should we just post this on social media before they announce the full list so we can at least get ahead of the story and say we got shortlisted and, and a celebratory sort of triumphant moment and we, we made that post thinking yeah we wouldn't get a list but one morning, it was a very early morning at 5 a.m., we had this call with a friend of ours from New York. He sort of had a Netflix documentary come out. He, he runs an NGO. So we were looking to collaborate with him, and it was a great chat afterwards. You know, obviously, I wanted to go back to bed. It was very early. <laughs> I wanted to get 30 minutes more rest. And, uh, you know, then Angel called me back. He goes, hey. And I was like, oh, what is it now? You know, we just got a call, very long call. And uh, she goes, we're on the list. I was like, what list? The Forbes list. Uh, I was like, what? So I checked it. You know, it was as surreal to me as it would be to, to anyone. So I, I went on Forbes and I looked at the site and, you know, there it was, draw history with that picture. And, yeah, it was the craziest moment to see it because we didn't get a heads up. Two hours later, then we got the email that was like, congratulations, you're on the list. Well, thanks for the heads up. Um, but it's been it's been so great. Like it's been a huge blessing just because we've been able to leverage that Forbes brand for the causes that you know we're we're fighting for. I think you know it's a mix between the social enterprise movement. It's a mix between the B Corp movement. You know, purpose and profit. It could work together. It's also a movement around storytelling and design that it does create impact. That we do have a place as an intermediary between nonprofits and their beneficiaries that we can actually amplify their impact. So yeah, it's been really, really good. And I think one of the greatest things about it is that, you know, it creates a cross-pollination opportunity for us to be able to bring some of that expertise from the global community back home, but also bringing conversations here into the global spotlight. And it was just great trading insights with other Forbes list makers in Amsterdam, in Hong Kong, about the stuff they're doing, but also about the things that we're doing in, in, in the Perth community. Not just about draw history, but a lot of the you know the creators and the entrepreneurs that are in, in WA. So yeah, it was it was really, really good. And uh, yeah, obviously really great to hear people like Kyrie Irving and quote unquote celebrities. Part about it really was seeing the humility. Um, that a lot of these Forbes 30 and 30 list makers had. None of them were stuck up. Uh, we were sort of, you know, all on the same ride wanting to change the world. It sounds very cliched, but that's what it felt like.
I'm glad you mentioned it, but that's sort of that cross pollination and that partnershiping. I'm because I looked on your website and noticed that you had quite a fair few partners that you do work with. I'm just curious how you sort of established those relationships. Were they sort of early on in the piece or did they take a few years to develop? Yeah, those came about organically. I guess, you know, over time during your journey, you sort of start to work with, with different people, right? Whether it's through projects or whether it's just hearing things through the grapevine, having a great chat about something and, and you really see the synergy between the two happen. So for us, for example, 316, that's a really, really you know, great social enterprise you actually check out as well. Um, they uh, do ethical tea. They work with farmers in northern Thailand you know, through a very sort of yeah, ethical supply chain where they get the tea leaves from the farmers. They sell uh, through retailers here. They connect the story, but they really bring those profits directly back to the farmers. They're not apportioning or allocating profits to multiple nonprofits. They're looking to you know, pay a fair wage to, to the farmers in northern Thailand. But, you know, besides besides that, the founder, um, Nat Fu, shout outs to Nat, he's a really, really great strategist as well. So he's done a lot of work in human-centered design. He's consulted for different NGOs. You know, he was in Copenhagen to, you know, to, to, to present on, on supply chains and things like that. But, you know, what he was saying really resonated with us and we had worked on different projects together. So having someone like that, you know, bringing that rigor and expertise in human-centered design, but also impact assessment, uh, business creation, obviously it just felt like a natural partnership. So, you know, him and his team are, are people that we work with. It seems so unconventional because they're a social enterprise doing doing tea and then retail goods, but behind that, you know, are, are you know, big hearts, but even bigger brains in social impact. So. Uh, providing us with a lot of rigor behind impact assessment and yeah seeing how we could incorporate design thinking into our work and then our clients work i am conscious of the time so i might just ask a few more questions before we start wrapping up so the last one i guess about draw history is that on the website i noticed that there was sort of this big focus on i guess the democratization of knowledge right and you guys posted like a lot of resources and sort of learnings online. I guess I'm sort of curious on how you sort of balance that process, right? Because I think, at, again, maybe this is a naive approach and I'm happy for you to challenge that. Sort of the work that Draw History does almost kind of like relies on, I guess, almost the selling of knowledge, sort of like, of course, it's a bit more than that and we've heard throughout this thing. Yeah, it just seemed like a, it might be a bit of a tricky balance to achieve. So I was just curious on your thoughts on that, if that sort of makes sense. It's a bit of a roundabout question. No, that's a great question. I think that's a very poignant thing to raise. <laughs> totally, you know, um, totally on point. Yeah. How, how do we create something that is countercultural to our very core business model without <laughs> cannibalizing our service? think that's a question that we pose to ourselves because in our hearts we knew that doing fee for service while it's great it's very much the traditional way of doing things again back to that unconventional you know outside the box thinking how do we challenge ourselves how do we not stay complacent we're talking about empowering nonprofits. we're talking about empowering social entrepreneurs what about those you know social entrepreneurs in cambodia or in nepal or in indonesia right those guys who don't have access to, to that knowledge or that expertise, I'll be going to upsell them on Australian dollar services. Um, you know, do they not get those resources because they can't afford it? 
that just seems very counterintuitive to who we are as people. Uh, I think one of the things we really wanted to do was go, well, we have all this knowledge, we have all these, these resources, and while a portion of the sector are able to afford it, and that's really great that we can meet them there and, and build their capacity through that, but what about those that can't? And we started you know, going through this, this process internally, and it's been you know, uh, definitely more than a few months juggling between, you know, business as, as usual to actually, you know, I guess, birthing a new initiative that, that we're about to, to launch. But you know, we had guys like Nat in, in the room to, you know, Nat from 316 to take us through this process in seeing what that could look like and democratizing knowledge. How do we do that in a way that transcends geography? Mm. Um, how do we do that in a way that transcends pricing? So those are the two things we really wanted to do. So at, at the moment, we are going to launch in the near future an initiative called Purpose U, uh, short for Purpose University. Um, it's almost this idea that's built on knowledge sharing. How do we get people to share knowledge amongst each other, not just draw history and them, but them amongst themselves? We've worked with so many great clients out there to know that they themselves have expertise and knowledge that they could share amongst each other, but just aren't able to because one, they don't know they exist or aren't you know, connecting with each other. Work in silos often uh, in WA in particular, you know, what that could look like for us is you know, maybe an online curriculum accompanied by offline classrooms that allow people to cross-pollinate and network, guided by live facilitators. Again, I don't really want to get too much into it because it's still a, you know, a work in progress really excited we're sort of looking into partnerships with people who have worked with netflix with the university of texas and some social enterprises that if i mentioned you guys were like ah those guys <laughs> they're in the works sorry to be so no, no, nebulous of course, um, understand. we're looking to do that prototype in a, in a way that's lean that's cost effective that's going to get people in the same room to uh, exchange insights um, to learn from experts to really be mentored throughout their, their journey and this process was also, you know, we brought a lot of our clients on board. We consulted them. We consulted the wider community. So we're just excited uh, to see how that pans out. So I think we might wrap up with sort of our, our usual closer. So we just got a couple of questions that we finish on. Given that we sort of have an audience of young people, want to make a difference, want to change the world. Are there sort of any points that you may have missed out or anything that you want to share with them sort of like as in final advice? And following that, if you have any sort of books, films or media in general that you'd recommend? Two major advices, I guess, from the stuff I've learned. I mean, don't take my word as possible, but, uh, you know, staying curious and staying resilient are two huge things you'll definitely need along your journey. Uh, as, as a young person, for me, taking the leap from the legal industry to, to doing this, and even before that, you know, I had to apply for 156 jobs before getting my first paid job so you know anyone can top that if you're listening um, let me know <laughs> uh, the other one is staying curious you know a lot of our materials aren't just from things from three four five years ago we're looking into stanford social innovation review we're reading the harvard business review but we're also you know looking into ideo we're looking into acumen upskilling and, and continuously trying to integrate human-centered design best practice into what we do and um, i think a lot of that stuff just you know, puts you ahead of the curve. Um, so yeah, keep trying, keep going, um, keep learning. It can only um, do you guys a world of good. Uh, one, I guess, one book I can recommend is the uh, Start With Why. 
book by Simon Sinek. If you're not much of a reader, you can also Google him. He's got a YouTube talk from Ted, the same thing, by Simon Sinek. That's S-I-N-E-K. Check it out. That's about finding your core purpose and how you tell a story through that mechanism. And he has some great canvases that you can look into. So, yeah, look into those. Want to have a chat? If you have any questions, go to drawhistory.com. Give us a shout or you can just reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm super open to just sharing insights. I always am. Yeah, Jeffrey Effendi, just Google me and I'll be on LinkedIn. Happy to have you know um, email exchanges. So yeah, thanks again for the opportunity. I very much appreciate it, guys. And we'll definitely chuck all that in the show notes as well as the organizations you mentioned throughout the uh, the conversation. But yeah, thank you again for taking the time out to jump on our show. 